Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, hello. It's January 3rd. January 3rd. Good. I'm in good shape right now. July 3rd, the 3rd, the 3rd of July. And uh, we're doing a brand new live show today when a lot of other shows are quiescent. So please remember that when you fill out your ratings cards at the end of the program. <laughs> give us give us more stars on Yelp or wherever we're being rated. You know, we did a brand new show for you on the Friday before the 4th of July. And, you know, we thought it's a good idea, too, because at least here in Connecticut, you know, the weather's a little, you know, unsettled, and maybe you'd like to have a, a show. We're going to talk a little bit later about uh, a movie uh, on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, it stars Pete Davidson. Yeah, movie starring Pete Davidson already doesn't sound like that great an idea. And I'm not sure our panel uh, loves it that much, although I actually have a slightly more charitable view of it. But that is still to come. Right now, what we are going to do is talk about the Vogue for renaming things. And joining us to do exactly that are two wonderful guests, regular panelists here on The Nose. Rebecca Castellani is a music writer for the Red Hook Star Review. And Rich Holland is principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. So, yes, uh, some in some cases it's totally voluntary and uh, is uh, initiated by the artist uh, him or herself. So the Dixie Chicks are now the Chicks, and uh, Lady Antebellum, uh, another musical group, is now Lady A. No word on what Confederate Railroad is going to do. I don't know what they could possibly. I, I don't think they'll do anything, but yeah, they could change their name to Grand Funk Railroad, but it's already taken. <laughs> so um, meanwhile, uh, there's a push to change the name of John Wayne Airport. You might not have even known there was a John Wayne Airport, but it's in Orange County, California. There actually seems to be a possibility that the Washington Redskins will finally change their name. There's a, at least a discussion in the works that insiders say is leading in that direction. Here in Connecticut, uh, the Guilford School, School Board has uh, agreed to drop the name Indians as the mascot or symbol of the teams. Uh, there's a discussion among Major League Baseball players about whether Kennesaw Mountain Landis's name should be on the MVP trophy. Uh, and lastly, but from my point of view, not leastly, Disney is not renaming, retheming which is definitely a Disney word. They are retheming Splash Mountain. It will no longer be based on Song of the South. It will be based on The Princess and the Frog. Um, and so, wow, that was a lot. So, yeah, Rich, I don't really know, you know, whether you, whether you guys want to start generally looking at all this or, I mean, as you know, I'm the most excited about to talk about Splash Mountain because I really did a lot of deep drilling on it. But but I don't know. Is there one thing that you said that I liked in our emails is it's kind of time for the historians to step forward and, and kind of tell us things that maybe we'd kind of either ignored or, or not know, known about, that the ball's a little bit in their court these days? Yeah, the ball's absolutely in the court of the historians um, and uh, for the people for, for whom that matters, right? Um, and uh, they haven't had their day yet, right? Um, if anything, uh, the historians have been uh, pushed to the, uh, to the back of the line um, for uh, opinion uh, to, to rule supreme. 
uh, as opposed to, um, you know, what actually happened and, you know, and, and uh, what was meaningful. Um, so given the, uh, the opportunity for the historians to move forward, uh, we end up with this, I find myself with this question um, of to what end exactly? And, let's, and this need to be very, very clear uh, about what we're doing um, and, uh, and the why of, of this renaming and of the, uh, the critical analysis for change. Um, I think change is, a, is incredibly important. Um, I think that a lot of this comes down to uh, a form of reparation and uh, a form of removing uh, the revisionist angles uh, that have uh, plagued uh, our education and our culture uh, in this country. And, um, and I think it's also really important to, uh, to look at the proportionality of what we're talking about. Um, uh, what, what is the intent of the language and what was the intent of, say, a monument? And uh, let's respond uh, to, to the intention and to the harm that it's actually causing. Um, uh, I'm uh, a little bit concerned uh, that we could go down a, a rabbit hole of, you know, a gleeful um, uh, erasure uh, that starts uh, looking a bit like um, McCarthyism, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so uh, where you know, where anyone who says anything at any time that just feels a little bit off gets completely blacklisted, and that. Um, uh, and that we somehow lose our context. Um, our context for me is about uh, liberation and let's get clear that all of the energy that we're putting in is working towards that. Right. I, I And I think a lot of that, what you're describing, has already happened in the context of cancel culture. I think people you know, often were overly penalized for, for smaller transgressions and that whole interest situation. The whole idea of proportionality didn't really get thought through, but it was all kind of a work in progress. But yeah, Rebecca, you know, one thing that you brought up too, that I have a phrase that I'm attempting to have trademarked or something, uh, a cheap date with my conscience. So, you know, like if I get Kennesaw Mountain Landis's name taken off the MVP trophy, that could be a cheap date with my conscience, you know. Well, I really did something here, and and there, yeah. I think Rich is raising a question about whether or not that's really anything of substance. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always been a question of sort of a yes and approach. So, yes, absolutely, we should get rid of these names that have you know steeped in, in racist history, and, you know, and some of which we don't know. We sub- just subconsciously accept, like Ash Mountain, like who knew that this had this rich racist undertone to it. I certainly didn't. But I think that it's got to be accompanied with more. It's got to be, okay, so we're going to remove the name. And in the case of Disney, it's replace it with their New Orleans princess, which feels a little ugh, like another great example of this is the the Bachelor franchise, which is notoriously super, super white, has just named their first black male Bachelor in reaction to being called out for being so white. And they think that, you know, that's that. Now the Bachelor is woke. And it's like, it's so much deeper than that than just these sort of virtue signaling, like, okay, we're going to do this. And I think it's great. It needs to be done. But what else? What what comes deeper? Like, how are these organizations working internally to actually dismantle systemic racism? Uh, you know, looking at Disney and big, big organizations that shape culture. Renaming something, great step in the right direction. But as you say, it is a cheap date. Let's get down to the third, fourth date. That's what I'm ready for. Like, let's take off our clothes and get messy. <laughs> right. So, well, I mean, in the case of 
John Wayne. All right. So when I first started to hear about uh, John Wayne and maybe his name is going to be taken off the airport, as I say, I was a little bit surprised. I didn't know there was a John Wayne airport. Um, and but then the, then the first thing I heard was, well, this is from a very old interview that he gave in Playboy magazine. And and here I started to think, well, that might be one of these things where, geez, you know, it was a long time ago and it's one interview and. You know, it's not really looking at the totality, although the totality right away has some red flags on it anyway for John Wayne. But then I saw what was in the interview. <laughs> the interview is bad. <laughs> and, and, and Rich, there's sort of a way in which, you know, the things that he says about uh, both black Americans and Native Americans, it, it, it's amazing he got away with that, you know, in 71 uh. or whatever year that was. I, I don't think that that's, I lived in 1971. Yeah. I don't think that sounded, you know, that sound like uh, the talk of the day to me um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you can pull in uh, John Wayne. Uh, you could uh, pull in, you know, things that Clint Eastwood has said. Uh, you could pull in Mel, uh, Mel Gibson on a beer or two. And, um, and uh, we are living in a culture that's been, that speaks like this constantly. I mean, we've got, you know, major politicians still talking like this now. Um, uh, I should, we should just say just to contextualize here. So among the things that he said were, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks mm -hmm. are educated to a point of responsibilities. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. Uh, he said that although he didn't condone slavery, quote, I, 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 should, I could do my John Wayne, but I'm not going to. Um, I don't feel guilty about the fact that five or ten generations ago these people were slaves. He felt no remorse about the subjugation of Native Americans either. I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from them. Our so-called stealing of this country from them was just a matter of survival. On and on and on and on and on. You know? We, we've been glorifying manifest destiny. Yeah. We sit in school and, and we learn about this as like one of the single greatest attributes of being American. Right? I had a whole section on manifest destiny. And when I watched Watchmen for the first time, I thought that the Tulsa massacre in Black Wall Street was a conceit created for the show. And I yeah. went to a private elite girls school and I had weeks of manifest destiny and not a single word mm -hmm. was spoken about Black Wall Street. Cool. Right. right. I mean, and, and so... But that sort of gets back to, first of all, I'm fine with taking John Wayne's name off the airport. Yeah, I, canceled. Be, well, it can't be Mel Gibson but Airport. I, but, can I tell you, know. you um, the, the, one, the, the one piece about that, though, um, uh, John Wayne has said some incredibly egregious things, and it should be removed. Uh, you know, I'm just, I've never been with John Wayne, so it's easy for me to be done with John Wayne, right? Um, but... There's this airport in Washington called, um, named after Ronald Reagan. Right. We need to have a conversation about that. And, and that well. conversation and does happen from time to time. Move. Yeah. That's going to be a harder thing to do, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and the harder things are interesting. I, I don't, I, and I think the harder things are interesting also because they're probably not going to happen and why yeah. they're not going to happen is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I, I also, I mean, first of all, uh, what I was going to say is that, Rich, you've helped me and what both of you have said just now have, have helped me kind of frame this that, yeah, sure, take John Wayne's name off the airport. But like, how let's have this conversation about Manifest Destiny. Let's talk. Let's have this conversation about, you know, how points of view in history, as it was taught when I was growing up, were pretty restricted to the white majority, you know, that, you know, which was 
true in the writing of the Constitution, too. I mean, that you know, the, this, our nation has a whole bunch of original sins that people don't want to talk about. And if John Wayne and his stupid airport get us in, into that conversation, that's great. Um, I, can we talk about Splash Mountain for a second? I think this yes, is kind please. of interesting. So, yeah, Rebecca, I was like you. I didn't know there was any background to this. What what did you find out that that, you know, made you think differently? I mean, I had no idea that it was based on this movie, The Song of the South. I was not familiar with the movie. And then I researched the movie and it doesn't sound great. It's about a little boy that goes to his grandmother's plantation post-war and they just reminisce about good old pre-war days. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I'll let you share the fact that you learned about the the lead actor, but it's a uh, it shocked me that that was just, and, and this sort of like innocuous renaming of it for the branding reasons for Splash Fine, well, which we actually, we talked about that before the show, that it was, uh, they renamed it after the Tom Hanks movie Splash for promotional reasons. Like that almost feels more insidious. They sort of like covered up the, you know, the connotations for what their origin of the ride came from. But I was surprised. I mean, it, it seems like something they would have gotten rid of years ago. And it seems a little late to be doing this, Disney. Right. So some of it, I have to say, is so I, I've never been to Disney World or Disneyland, uh, but I actually watched a video of the Splash Mountain ride. So I would <laughs> see what you see. And, and you, you don't. So, so wholesome. So, yeah. So to back up. Um, so Song of the South, which I'm I probably saw as a kid. I just don't have a really clear memory of it. I certainly, you know, absorbed in the culture a, a lot of the references to Br'er Rabbit. Uh, the tar baby, uh, you know, don't throw me in the briar patch, all, all that kind of stuff uh, as part of the book, as part of the movie. So that's really not exactly, Br'er Rabbit is in, in there. What, what you see on the ride is weird because it's so decontextualized. Uh, like a kid getting on that ride, Mike Pesco recently said that his, he took his sons on that ride and they just couldn't figure out what was happening. You know, <laughs> why were there like alligators having a jug band and why, why was there this kind of trickster rabbit and you know, what was going on here? What was, where, where did this live in cultural history? It didn't really seem like anything they as kids had ever seen before. So yeah, so Song of the South was released in 1946 to great protest at the time in 1946 from the NAACP, from the black community at large. They did see it as this idyllic representation of the master-slave relationship. Uh, you know, we're coming right out of World War II. The, you know, they were saying very much, this is not what we fought for, not so we could celebrate this kind of thing. So it wasn't, the objections, you know, didn't spring up as a result of some new woke, you know, recrudescence. They were sort of there from the beginning. Uh, and um, nonetheless, yeah, they did this ride. And I found out today Michael Eisner was hoping that he could somehow or tie the ride into the movie Splash, which is really weird because uh, my, because Tom Hanks sings zippity doo dah in Splash. So I feel like this the Knights Templar are running everything now or something. It's, <laughs> it, it's completely bizarre. But, you know, it, it is rich kind of interesting because you have to know a, a few things before you understand, I think, why Splash Mountain is objectionable. I don't think the ride itself shows you what it's really about. It just looks weird <laughs> because they, well, they, yeah. Well, but yeah, well, I want to hear uh, from you. So it's the it's the how many degrees from Kevin Bacon are we right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that we've got a ride uh, that um, that loosely is is uh, is demonstrative of you know pre-war Southern 
Southern themes. Um, but you have to actually track it, trace it all the way back to a movie that, you know, I don't know how, I know my kids have never seen it. I don't know how many folks have actually, you know, are, are recollecting that movie. I mean, I recall it, um, you know, and, and I recall that there were, as a kid, that there were parts of it that I thought were kind of amusing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and by the time we got a little bit older uh, in, you know, in reflection, uh, you know, I saw it as just, uh, you know, just more glorification uh, um, of a period of time that uh, <laughs> that was just certainly not glorious, right? Um, so I don't. I, this one's a tough one, right? Um, no, I, I don't think it's ultimately tough. tough. You no. actually, excuse me. I don't think it's ultimately tough. I mean, why do you think it's tough? Tell me. Uh, the reason. Because I think ultimately, it's all marketing, it's all business, mm -hmm. and uh, and Disney's going to do what serves Disney best right now, um, and uh, and they will change the name, and uh, it will not cause any harm whatsoever. Uh, there's no real reparation that takes place there. No, uh, they're gonna, exactly. They're just gonna, exactly. They're going to not only uh, you know virtue signal with it, but use that to actually make a ton more money. It's performative allyship at its, you know, most corporate. And Disney has, you know, done this for a long time. And I think, again, like the idea that they're going to replace it with the princess and the frog to me is just the icing on the cake. They're like, okay, we're going to take it, take away the racist thing. And we're going to make it about a black woman now just to make sure we're dotting all our I's and crossing our T's. Just, yep. it, it's classic Disney. It, it is, you know, one of the things that I would like to inform myself about at some point so I should first of all say that James Baskett, it, this the movie Song of the South, but before there was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there was Brer Rabbit, and they're they're similar in the sense that you have human actors interacting all the way through with with animated animals, uh, and James Baskett, who plays Uncle Remus, he's a human real life actor who plays Uncle Remus in this, could not attend the premiere of this movie in 1946 because the movie the premiere was being of Song of the South was being held in an all white restricted movie theater into which Ugh. he was not allowed to enter. Just think about that. Um, it, that came up also recently in Netflix's Hollywood, uh, you know, with the actors not able to go to award ceremonies where they are being honored. I mean, this is, it, it is, you know, Rich, you're absolutely right that we shouldn't be surprised by any of this if you live through any of it. You know, on the other hand, it, it is sort of weirdly shocking. I do find myself wondering if in the core material, like I, I need to know more about the core material, whether in fact it in any way does derive from a actual black folkloric tradition that you know where there's any part of it that's worth preserving but but i also agree that it, once again it's very easy for disney to, to sort of you know change the name and take a bow um, mm -hmm. so so i don't know which which one of the so we've got what do we got left we got the washington redskins <laughs> Uh, we've got uh, Guilford, which uh, did the right thing. Uh, we've got some bands, uh, which uh, changed voluntarily changed their names. I don't know. I mean, should we talk about the Redskins? Well, Is there I, I, I do yeah, actually want to talk about all of those, Colin. Okay. Uh, and, and it's a point that we made, uh, that you made earlier, and I just kind of want to slow it down a little bit so that, you know, so that we could hear it clearly, right? Um, we have folks who are changing the sports themes' names, you know, and then we have uh, fans of those sport, sports teams 
uh, that are continuing to parade around uh, (laughs) in their, you know, in their nostalgic wear, you know, and, um, and we just need to be really clear that, um, that of a thousand step process, uh, this renaming is step one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and, and it, it is going to, for a period of time uh, in our culture, uh, cause some folks to double down, um, you know, in their, in their conviction uh, that holding on to their nostalgia, however harmful that may be, you know, is their God-given right. And, um, and uh, at that point, um, I have no idea what the strategy and what the plan is going to be. I think that's a great point. And, you know, Rebecca, also to what you were saying as we were emailing. So I should say, I wrote my column this week on there's sort of a, a rename Yale movement. Now, some of it was sort of started up by as trolling from the right. It's kind of like, if you take Columbus away from us, we want Yale. Um, but it's also been picked up by people, you know, with much more sincere sentiments. And I find myself thinking that would be really hard to do. You know, it was relatively easy yeah. to rename Calhoun College. Uh, but, you know, renaming Yale would be hard to do. Is that an argument maybe for doing it, though, to actually yeah. do something that would be really yes. hard? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, doing the hard things right now is the point. I mean, this is how we push the culture to learn and grow and sitting in that discomfort and doing a difficult thing is the responsibility of institutions. I went to the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, and the logo is the Crusader. And a couple of years ago, they tried to change the logo unsuccessfully because all of the old white male donors said they were going to stop donating and made a huge stink. And they ended up keeping the mascot, even though there's really no positive connotation to a crusader any way you spin it. It's just mm-hmm. not a good mascot. It feels really awkward cheering for one. It got, you know, sort of reduced down to just Seder, which, you know, was, again, a strange sort of then Jewish bastardization of it. It was just all bad. And the school refused to change it because it was difficult because they were going to piss off the old white men that are, you know, endowing buildings left and right. And I was so disappointed in that outcome. And to see the comments that, you know, the college left up unmoderated, I made one comment. So I think it was one of my last forays into Facebook. I was so upset about this saying, you know, this is not indicative of the school experience I had. And I had men, you know, CEOs of big time companies tagging me in comments for months after telling me to go lie down in 290, that I should be killed. I mean, just Whoa. insane. And they, the school let the comments up. It was bad. The whole thing was bad. People were outraged, but it, it was a conversation that needed to be had. And it, it was very disappointing that the outcome was what it was. But to me, it really was like removing my rose colored glasses for the collegiate experience that I think a lot of the times it does not reflect the students that attend the school or the teachers teaching at the school. It reflects the big money pockets that are able to control it. And I think that's where we have to work and that's where the dismantling needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, that dismantling forces a, a much deeper uh, um, uh, evaluation yeah. of what we prioritize. Um, we've got uh, local schools here um, who named their high, who named their homerooms in high school uh, after Ivy League schools. Wow. Right. So this is the Yale room. You wow. Know, this homeroom is the Yale team. This is the Harvard team. This is the Brown team, et cetera. Um, uh, and, uh, and right here, right in our midst. Um, and, uh, 
that that needs some real some real reconsideration, right? Yeah. And you know, and and it isn't just it's it's certainly the layer about who it's named after, but who it's named after um, permeates this um, this uh, culture. What I what I call this culture of excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, excellence is uh, is determined by a very small group of people, and it's a constantly moving target. Um, and uh, um, that that is a, is an excellence that's more exclusionary than it is inclusive. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, and so there are all these. Um, there's the historical piece, but then there's all the fly. It, the history is like flypaper in a lot of ways, right? And there's all this other stuff that's stuck to it. Yeah. Um, and all of that needs examining. You know what we. Image. I, lo- I love that image. History is like flypaper. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and that's really, really true too. It just all this stuff you just kind of get stuck to it. And you know, to your earlier point, Rich, you know, it, the truth is, at the sort of hearts and minds level, people rebel against all of this. You're absolutely right that they're going to walk around with their. I mean, you know, if the Redskins name is taken off that franchise, it'll make the merch hotter the existing you know uh, merch yeah. will become hotter there are people complaining bitterly on various social media forums about the retheming of splash mountains it's almost like yeah. you know white rides matter or something <laughs> um, and and so it'll never you know will will it, it's going to be take a long time and be very granular we, we have to save a little bit of time for pete davidson who i think it is fair to say has not participated in the culture of excellence um uh and uh, but we will talk about him. I, I have to give you some updates from uh, Jonathan McPants, who like I get like things all the time, uh, and, and they're all kind of interesting from him. So uh, first of all, he wants us to know that there's a sizable imprint of the face of Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landa, uh, Landis that's also on the MVP baseball trophy. Uh, I can't so, believe that was his God-given name, yeah. Kennesaw Mountain. That's the silliest part of the whole thing. Right. And so if you want to read more about that, I mean, basically, he just presided over the whites only non-integrated version of major league baseball that's one reason it's sort of weird to give these mvb trophies to black ball players who win them and then they have to look at his face uh also that john wayne said unkind and homophobic things about uh about gay people uh in that same interview uh that the boston red sox some of the boston red sox Sox have tested positive for covid19 that's not part of our discussion but you might want to know it uh and that everybody in song of the south has a kevin bacon number of three Um, whoa wow according to this is a big conspiracy according to jonathan mcdickle for example hattie mcdaniel is in that and he uh, jonathan points out she's in next time we love with ray milan ray milan is in dead men don't wear plaid with steve martin steve martin is in planes trains and automobiles with kevin bacon so there you go uh All right. Uh, he also wants us to know that people are already selling Guilford Snowflakes T-shirts after the no. of the Indian name. Yeah, of course. And once in Indian, always in Indian bumper stickers. So there you go. Come on. Um, <laughs> so with all of that, I just thought we would get that under our belt. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> I know. I'm it's sorry cool. about that. There is nowhere to. Unfortunately, as is the case with COVID-19, there's nowhere to go. You know. No, <laughs> it's all a trap. Right. Let's take a break. We'll come back with Rich and Rebecca. <laughs> Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. 
of sunshine. All right, welcome back to the news. The news this week is Rebecca Castellani, music writer for the Red Hook Star Review, Rich Holland, a principal at CoLab Co and founder of Free Center and Commissioner on Cultural Affairs for the city of Hartford. So uh, a movie that we watched, uh, it is one of those movies that would have been released to a movie theater. And thus, when you want to watch it on Amazon Prime, you have to pay more like what you would pay for two or three people to see it at the movie theater. Uh, it's called The King of Staten Island. It stars uh, Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, Tomei uh, Bill Burr. Uh, so uh, let's begin by hearing just a, a little clip from this. So this character, uh, played by Pete Davidson, uh, is uh, at Yankee Stadium. Uh, he's with a bunch of firefighters. His father, not unlike Pete Davidson's father, uh, is a firefighter who died in, in the line of duty. Pete Davidson's real father, as people probably know, uh, died in 9-11 in the line of duty. So uh, what else do you need to know? Oh, so Bill Burr uh, is the new uh, boyfriend uh, of, of Pete's mother. And OK, that's enough setup. Just play the clip. Do you ever think about putting on the jacket? You no. laughing about this is a stupid question, right? Would you ask the kids of that teacher who blew up in space if they want to be an astronaut? Whoa. I don't think that lady had any kids. Yeah, I'm sure she didn't because she died in space. It's hard to have kids when you're dead in space. Look, I, I could tell you how I feel about farming, but I, I don't think you guys want to hear my opinion. No, 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 please, tell us. No, I want to hear. You don't got to do this, man. Come on. All right, no. Yeah. Okay, how about this? Uh, if you're a fireman, just don't have kids or a family at all, okay? So that way you don't crush them when you don't come home that one time, you know? And, and you're just so selfish. You just hang out with your boys all day like it's a frat house. Half the time you're not even putting out fires. You're just jerking off watching Scarface, okay? All right, take it easy, man. No, I'm just saying. And it's wrong to tell a kid that you're going to be there for him for his whole entire life. You, have, you miss graduation. Your birthdays, okay? Uh, my my prom dances. It's a very mean thing to do to children. And uh, if you have a family, you, no, you're an take, it easy. take it easy. One way to look at it. Yeah. Tell that to my dad. Oh, but you can't, because he's dead. Anybody got a good response to that? All right, so... um. Uh, the, before I, I'm just going to let the panel talk about this for a while. The one thing that I will say is that this movie is 136 minutes long, which Jonathan McPants points out to me is not really that long for a Judd Apatow movie. Judd Apatow, uh, director of Funny People, 146 minutes long. This is 40, 134 minutes long. Uh, so, uh, yes, his, his movies are long. And, of course, he also directed uh, a really good and really interesting um, documentary about Gary Shandling. The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which is 270 minutes long, I think. So it's long, is all I'm trying to say. So, Rebecca, you didn't like this as much as you might have guessed that you might have. Yeah, this definitely, on paper, ticked a lot of boxes for me. I grew up watching Judd Apatow, man-child comedies. I have a soft spot for a dad bod because of him. Uh, but it just, I don't know if it was the fault of Pete Davidson or it was a fault of editing or writing. It just, it, I struggled to stay awake. Uh, I didn't find it that funny and I didn't really find it as poignant as it should have been. You know, it's dealing with the, this, this complicated crucible of mental illness and daddy issues and substance abuse and arrested development and all these things that, you know, really do speak to the generation I've grown up in. 
And yet I, it just didn't feel very reflective of anything. It kind of reminded me of an ex-boyfriend I had I didn't like very much. So that wasn't great. And uh, Pete Davidson was was all right. Uh, you know, he's compelling as a real person in real life. I think, you know, his relationship with SNL, he's, he's a completely different type of comedian than what they typically have. He's got this kind of dour e-boy thing going on that is, you know, apparently very attractive to the youths these days. Lanky, lanky poltergeists don't really do it for me, but uh, it seems to be popular. But he just, he's, he's more compelling in real life than this sort of rough translation of his life. It just didn't tell me anything new about him. It didn't tell me anything new about mental health. And it didn't tell me anything new about the current moment we're in. It just sort of felt, I don't know, it, it felt sort of gratuitous and unnecessary. You know, that might be an interesting sort of pre-screen warning from now on. The following movie may remind you of men you have dated. Yeah. Uh, so be, be, be warned. So maybe that's what this all just comes down to. <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. I actually, I think the points that you're making are really good. Rich, how about you? Um, if, if Steve Buscemi can't bring a movie home, it's not a good <laughs> uh, That's um, There's a couple of interesting things that I noted about this movie. First of all, um, in terms of the, the arc of the narrative, um, you know, the, the plot development, uh, you know where this thing is going from the minute it started. Um, uh, as soon as you know about the, you know, dad died in the fire, uh, you know, you know that eventually this guy's going to end up where he ended up. <laughs> yes. You know, that it was going to turn the way it turned. You know, uh, the, the one thing that I'm, that, uh, I'm thankful for is it didn't go so far as, uh, what was that movie called again? Blaze or something like that? Um, with uh, uh, Patrick Swayze. Oh, God. And, remember that one? No. It you know, <laughs> doesn't the, sound great. The, fa- uh, the Family of Firefighters. Oh. Well, there's Backdraft, which is Backdraft. Kurt Russell. That's what it is. It's, Kurt, it's Kurt Russell and uh, Kurt Russell William and, Baldwin. And, yep. and there's also Frequency. Talk about daddy issues. Frequency is the one where Dennis Quaid and the guy who played Jesus in the uh, Mel Gibson movie uh, are father and son communicating by ham radio across time. They're both. Uh, he's a, he's uh, no. a Dennis Quaid's a firefighter who died in a fire. Uh, Jim, whatever his name is, has become a cop. But it's like a very fire very firefightery movie. So anyway, continue, Rich. I just wanted to inject a tremendous firefighter. <laughs> that you know, that I'm just I'm personally thankful uh that it didn't turn into um uh the characters on the screen somehow becoming these massive firefighter heroes. Yeah. Um, that that was not a part of the arc of the story. So to a certain extent they, they you know they took some of that hyperbole out of it. Um uh but it was uh it was a pretty mundane movie. Um, it didn't go very. It didn't go very far, uh, and it took a long time to not get there. Um, I also found and- that the treatment of women in this, you know, Judd Apatow has never been great to his female characters at, really at all, and in this particularly, I think I'm just more aware of that now. And it was just so glaringly obvious to me that every female in this movie was just used as a prop to advance the plotline of Pete Davidson's. Which you know, it's Pete Davidson's movie, that's fine, but it certainly didn't pass the Bechdel test. And the char- the female characters were just sort of flat. I mean, Marissa Tomei is fantastic, but she had more presence as peter parker's aunt in the spider-man homecoming movies and she and she was on you know for 10 minutes in that movie than she did in this whole movie but i i i think the point that i was actually about to make rebecca is that um and while i agree with you that that the roles were underdeveloped i think that they were better developed and more interesting characters um with more interesting evolution than his typical females than any of the guys in the movie 
Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just a testament to how flat Davidson yeah. was because I didn't really feel like I knew any of the female characters other than like that's his girlfriend, that's his sister, who's also Maud Apatow and seems mm-hmm. to just be playing Maud Apatow though yeah. in Staten Island and his mom. The, and uh, you, and the lesbian a, firefighter who didn't have a name. Let me ask right. you a question. It may not be a fair question because it, it's just so hypothetical, but I'll ask you and anyway. If this were sort of a low-budget mumblecore movie that wasn't directed by somebody famous and didn't star somebody who had a tremendous platform in Saturday Night Live and you know, blah, 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 would... I don't know. Would our judgment, would our sights be set a little bit differently? Would we have a little bit more patience for it? I mean, are we at all just bothered by the fact that these people have an awful lot of resources to do whatever they want? Like if this was a little unknown indie film? Yeah. You think we'd be more hospitable? I think if we were a little unknown indie film, Colin. um, So I think that we can't stop that that hypothetical halfway. Mm -hmm. Um, If we were a little uh, indie film, there's a couple of other things that would have happened, right? Um, that there would have been more naivete uh, yeah. to the performances, that these are people that wouldn't necessarily know their marks as clearly as these people knew their marks, you know, and they hit their mark in a, you know, in a really kind of obvious and cliche and, and sort of go nothing place, you know, they walk through the scene. And, um, and I could watch someone who uh, actually doesn't really know what they're doing uh, fumble through a movie uh, then watch someone who knows what they're doing uh, just have a lackluster experience of going through the going through the narrative. That's a really great answer. Um, I, I, and I don't know that it's my answer, but it's a really great answer. I, I, the one thing I'll just offer a slightly differing view, which is, I mean, first of all, I, I didn't not enjoy this movie, which I realize is damning by faint praise. Um, and I thought that it it makes a good argument for meeting people at their level. Um, and I thought one of the better touches, I was trying to remember, I saw it right when it came out. And like all of every, like everybody, I've been through a lot since then and things have <laughs> kind of driven things out of my mind that are fairly recent. But uh, one of the little plot devices is, you know, okay, so Bill Burr is this guy who's dating uh, Pete Davidson's mom, Marissa Tomei. Uh, and he, I think he's not a super engaged father himself. And so his idea of getting some usefulness out of Pete Davidson's character is that Peter Davidson has to walk his kids to school, which you can sort of tell Bill Burr doesn't want to do. And and what happens is that Pete Davidson, you know, in maybe a somewhat cliched way, manages to connect with these kids, particularly with this little boy, uh, about stuff that his father is just not at all interested in. And, and that, that sort of, you know, turns into a little bit of a rolling thing where maybe everybody starts to connect a little bit. I mean, there is a way in which it connects back, Rich, to the thing you were saying about the culture of excellence in schools and how excellence gets very narrowly defined, you know, and if you don't fit it, then you're, you know, you're potentially a failure. I mean, obviously, you know, Pete Davidson's kind of playing that to the max, both in real life at times and certainly with this character. But I don't know, was there, is there anything to what I'm saying that this Rebecca makes an argument for at least kind of trying to meet people where they are instead of setting the kind of standards that Rich was talking about in the previous segment? Sure, absolutely. And I think it's really important to convey that in more films. And I think it's important to normalize, you know, mental health and all of its Oops. stories. There she is. Oh, did you lose me? Yeah, we lost you for a second. But oh, I think I'm we sorry. Got what you, we got what you were saying. All that together. Oh, I'm sorry. I might be having internet issues. 
I knew we were doing so well. Um, yeah. So basically, I yes, I think it's very important, uh, especially important for young men to see examples of mental health in pop culture and in the media, and that the struggle is not universal and it can you know be manifested in a bunch of different ways. And that idea of you know meeting people where they are is very important to and something that we don't do a ton of in our culture. So yeah, I, I think that's the most redeeming quality to this movie. And I wish that they'd almost leaned into that a little more. It, it sort of felt unresolved at the end, whether he was going to be better or not. And I, I know that that's, again, not how mental health works, but it, it felt like it came close to being something that could have been really profound, but it, it just sort of shied away from that. And maybe this would have been better if it was more of a dramedy and less of like trying to be a Judd Apatow manchild comedy. All right, All right. Rich, you, you want to get a last word in here? Yeah, but... And I think that that ultimately is the failing of the movie, right? That it actually didn't meet the the realism of of acceptance. Yeah. Um, that this that this kid was constantly being pushed to to be better uh, to the point that you know that uh, you know that his mom, uh, who is the the character that called for the most empathy in this movie, uh, you know, gave up on him, yeah. right? Um, and, uh, and that giving up on him is what prompted, um, you know, the little yeah. change that we saw. Right. And so that actually doesn't help at all with the no. meeting people <laughs> where they are. All right. We're going to stop there just so you'll have time to make some endorsements on the other side. You're listening to the nose and we'll be back. All right, got to say special thanks to Cat Pastor, who's there in the studio booth, making it possible for others of us to work remotely. I'm uh, at my house right now, so is uh, Jonathan McNichol McPants uh, at his. He is the producer of this episode, person you know, came coming up with the topics, pulling the clips, and also inserting. I was trying to get him to think of a, of a movie that Steve Buscemi couldn't save besides this one because uh, it's the kind of thing that he regularly comes up with uh but uh and I, I thought of ghost world i'm not sure whether that's a movie that Bashemi doesn't save but uh we didn't come up with that anyway thanks to jonathan mcpants uh and rich holland and rebecca castellani are with us we're going to endorse a few things recommend a few things uh rich why don't you go first awesome uh i'm going to uh in the spirit of of revisionist history and taking down uh, these monuments and, uh, and, and leaving space for a new narrative. Uh, I want to lift up uh, two pieces. Uh, one is very, is hyper-local. Um, it's a collaboration uh, with Heartbeat Ensemble and, uh, and the folks at, um, uh, at My People Clinical Services. It's a series that they're doing called uh, Fatherhood Mono. Uh, fatherhood monologues. Uh, it's about um, you know the the value of uh, of fathers uh, through how they engage with their kids. Uh, um, what I've seen thus far is decidedly black, and uh, and um, a piece of the uh, you know of the black narrative that needs to be told. 
some of us are, you know, exceptional dads uh, through difficult context. Um, you could, uh, the best way nowadays to, to find them is, uh, is on social media. Uh, go to Facebook, look for Heartbeat, H-A-R-T, Beat Ensemble. And, uh, and you could see uh, posts um, that, uh, uh, that share the latest uh, uh, works in this series. Um, next, uh, I want to, again, as we take down, um, take down these monuments, uh, behind them has always been some incredibly powerful uh, Black art that has always told the story of what's going on in the moment. Uh, if there were just room uh, to, to hear and to, to see the work. Um, I'm going to uh, make a recommendation for the book, Soul of a Nation, uh, Art in the Age of Black Power. Okay. It is just absolutely gorgeous and sumptuous and the work is mind blowing. Uh, so again, um, Soul of a Nation, it's from an exhibit uh, in Art in the Age of Black Power. All right. Before we go to Rebecca, I want to report some research from Jonathan McPants. The Island, directed by Michael Bay with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett oh. Johansson. Yeah, that was uh, bad. That was a bad movie. <laughs> and it is not. It is not rescued by Steve Buscemi. No. So there. He's there. in that. Apparently he is in that. Yes. It. Well, maybe that's Ooh, your own self protection. Yeah. Uh, so, Rebecca uh, Castellani, what have you got for us? So my first recommendation this week is a collection of essays called Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion by Gia Tolentino. Uh, Gia was an editor at Jezebel and has written extensively uh, about millennial subjects. And it's just a really, really wonderfully written, expansive take on social media and the modern you know, phenomenons, everything from athleisure to megachurches to the 2016 election. It's just very intelligent and... Uh, fascinating will certainly have you re-examining your relationship with a lot of things you take for granted as a young millennial. So that's Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. It's fantastic. And my second endorsement is sort of broad. And that is, you know, while we're still in this crazy uncertain time, do yourself a favor and support your local farmers and your local farmers markets and get some of those delicious vegetables that are available right now. Uh, my partner now works at a farm and I've been using this period of quarantine to do a lot more cooking and especially a lot more plant-based cooking. And it is just amazing how much you can get out of certain vegetables. I have recently started making pesto out of radish tops and radish tops are, you know, really prickly and hurt your hands when you're pulling out a radish, but blended up in a pesto, they are about as good as it gets. So check out what your farmer's market has, experiment and uh, get in on the good vegetable goodness that's going on right now. All right, then. So um, I wasn't going to endorse this, but I, I guess I am because of something that Rich said. So uh, we've actually had this wonderful reporter at uh, WNPR, Ryan Lindsay, but we don't really actually get to keep her forever because she's grant funded. And so uh, a note today drew me to some work that she did done earlier uh, back in November uh, about uh, black artists at uh, the Wadsworth Avenue and represented there. And it made me think of Benny Andrews. Benny Andrews, it was this amazing painter. He happened to be a, a friend of mine, somebody that I, I held very dear for very many years. And really kind of a little bit of the generation of Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence, but maybe just one little hair less well known. So um, there is 
something, I mean, you can't go to museums really right now very easily, but there's something called Benny Andrews Estate. It's BennyAndrews.com uh, online. If you've ever, never seen his work, I mean, it's not a bad thing to kind of scroll, uh, kind of scroll through and kind of get a sense uh, of of him. He was an amazing artist and and uh, had so much to say. Uh, and then you have to discover his father, George Andrews, who's an outsider artist. They called him the Dot Man. Uh, check out the Dot Man, George Andrews, because he also will make your eyes pop. Um, I'm going to call your attention to a Twitter thread from this week. It's guy by a guy named Matthew Rosenberg. I think his actual Twitter handle is at Ashcan Press. It's a Twitter thread about his father's fascination with Carl Reiner, uh, and particularly with a sketch that he remembered from your show of shows, uh, and that he kind of obsessed about and argued with his own brother about. And about. And you have to read this long thread, and there are a lot of really nice little surprises and rewards uh, when you do. But uh, so it's Matthew Rosenberg. If you can't find it any other way, Go on Twitter and type in Sauerbraten to the search field. So uh, anyway, I think we're uh, out of time right now. So I'm going to do nothing other than thank our wonderful panelists, both amazing today, Rebecca Castellani uh, and uh, also the wonderful Rich Holland. Uh, come back on Monday. We're going to do a scramble. Uh, Betsy Kaplan and I already have one planned. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.